tax tax which is always exciting GST that's a great idea more efficient tax due diligence now Hello everyone and welcome. This is Tax Wrap. My name is Nathan Hewitt and today we're joined by Andy and Letty. How are we doing guys? Oh, hi Nathan. I'm good, I'm good. Hope you're well. I'm doing good. It's great to be back this week again. Now, the first thing that we want to talk about uh, this episode is Tony Abbott's National Press Club address, which was a couple of weeks ago now. And given the the turmoil of the Libsville that happened last week, um, it sort of uh, clouded the Liberal agenda and taking the, the attention away from the liberal, liberal agenda as it applies to taxation. Now, as Letty's about to tell us, they had some key government, government initiatives in this sphere that sort of um, fell by the wayside a little bit. So we want to talk a little bit about that and shed some light on it. So Letty, what are the main things that we need to take away from um, the National Press Club address? Sure. Well, the Prime Minister's, the Prime Minister's speech actually covered uh, quite a lot of initiatives in a number of areas. But what we, uh, Taxpayers Australia, has done is to look at the initiatives that are specific to tax. Um, and our listeners also need to be aware that right now a lot of these ideas are just ideas. So there's nothing concrete. There's um, no nothing legislated just yet so the first thing and a lot of our listeners would have seen this in the general media uh, our Prime Minister has proposed that the that his proposed paper rental leave scheme will actually be scrapped um, you remember that a few years ago uh, he suggested putting a 1.5% levy or tax on big businesses to fund an expanded paper rental leave scheme so that scheme will probably go and in its place the government plans to invest in a family's package that is focused more on childcare. Um, So we'll just have to see what comes out of that. Mm. Um, One interesting thing to note is that the Prime Minister's speech didn't mention his plans for that proposed 1.5% levy on the big businesses, whether that will also be scrapped as part of scrapping the PPL or whether they're still going to um, levy that tax on big businesses and use it to fund the, the new childcare package. We don't know. That's a very that's a very interesting point, really. Um, yeah, it's something that people don't really think about because wasn't there uh, plans by the government to also reduce the company tax rate? Uh, absolutely, and that was something else um, Tony Abbott uh, mentioned. Specifically, it's actually for small businesses. Uh, so. They're having plans to reduce the company tax rate for small businesses by 1.5%. And in this speech, he has committed to cutting company tax for small businesses by at least 1.5%. And it was interesting that he said at least 1.5%. And this is to commence 1st of July 2015. Now, once again, we haven't seen any legislation or anything like that. So whether this all goes through Parliament in time for, 2000, for 1st of July 2015, which is in only a few months' time, or whether it will go through later in the year and it will simply be backdated, it's, it, who knows? Yeah, and just, just for the benefit of our listeners, ladies, um, what constitutes a small business for tax purposes here? Is it, is it based on turnover? Is it asset sizes? or? Yeah, well, um, I, I suppose th- there's quite a few me- different measures of small businesses, um, but for the purposes of this proposal, we, we haven't yet seen any uh, definitive guidance as to what the government, what, what entities the government plans to include or to exclude. Okay, yeah, I, I, su- I suppose um, the current definition of a small business entity for tax purposes is a 
entity that has an aggregated turnover of less than two mil. So that less than two million. Less than yes. two okay. million. So that could possibly be yes. um, one way. That could be one measure, certainly. Yeah. But in terms yeah. of, I suppose, in terms of whether that's. The that's measure the measure that, that we're using. Used. That's sort of up in the up in the air at the moment. Sure, mm. we just don't have details of that right now. So, Letty, who are the the groups uh, that are most likely to be adversely affected by these proposals? Adversely affected. Well, if the if the 1.5% levy on big businesses um, doesn't get scrapped along with the PPL, then obviously big business is going to um, have a bit of a beef about that. Um, in terms of small businesses, they'll be happy with a tax cut of at least 1.5%, I'm sure. However, we've actually already seen some groups that are supporting, um, for example, retirees or other groups that are heavily dependent on receiving dividends as income uh, because the problem with that, the problem with a tax cut is that when franking credits flow through, the less company tax that is paid, the fewer franking credits will flow through to the ultimate investor and therefore their personal tax that, that they have to pay on those dividends will then be increased. Okay, Okay. so so essentially we can, uh, for a personal investor they could be paying an additional 1.5%. Yes, mm. yeah, so if you keep things very simple, let's just say that a personal investor is at a top marginal rate of 30%. I'm just making up numbers just to keep things very simple. And currently the company tax rate is 30%. So when franking credits flow through, and if a dividend is 100% franked, then that means that investor can take that full 30% rate of tax that the company has paid and offset their tax on the dividend, which will also be 30% if that's their marginal rate. Okay. Uh, however, if you cut the company tax rate to 28.5% or even lower, then that means that ultimate investor is still going to have to pay 30% on that dividend, but they can only claim the 28.5% that the company has paid, and therefore okay. they will have to fork over more money. Okay, that makes sense. So it'll be sure. interesting to see how this evolves in the next... Absolutely. Sort of so there, there may be a lot of winners, but there'll also be... Uh, I wouldn't use the word losers, not yet, but uh, there'll, there'll, there'll always be competing interests in our, in our economy. Really. <laughs> very true, very true. Now, there's quite a lot going on with in the, the property universe is generally always the case there's a lot of people are interested in it so that means there'd be a lot of people are interested to hear from us now andy you've recently written an article for our monthly taxpayer magazine uh, demystifying negative gearing so basically we want to take all the mystery out of negative gearing and explain it in a way that's um, a little bit easier for people to digest that's right uh, i guess to start off with um, negative gearing has been around with us for ages uh, by way of background you know, back in 1985, the Hawke government um, wanted to get rid of negative gearing. They achieved that for about two years, and then basically they brought it back in in 1987. So, negative gearing, property, Australians—they're all things that uh, are synonymous with you know, sort of uh, getting that Australian dream. So, mm-hmm. so, so I guess in terms of you know what it actually all means, um, negative gearing is essentially a loss that you make in respect of a rental property, uh, particularly in the case of individuals. And that loss is generally typically generated by uh, a heavy load of uh, interest deductions because the property is highly geared. Now, in those particular circumstances, the, uh, the individual is able to offset that, that loss from their property after you know, uh, rental income less their various expenses. And they can apply that against their other sources of income most commonly their salary and wages. Mm-hmm. And so 
in that sense, uh, you get a you get a tax saving because your taxable income has been reduced, and you pay a little bit less tax because you're able to utilise that loss. So, Andy, what are the main problems that people run into when dealing with the negative gearing sphere? Because it's obviously quite confusing and multifaceted because, well, that's why it is confusing, because yeah. it's multifaceted. So what are the main sort of problems people deal I, with? I, I think there's, you know, for me anyway, there's a bit of misconception as, as to what how negative gearing works. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of investors out there, you know, they, they speak to their mates or they speak to others and they go, oh, geez, uh, John down the street bought a property and it's negatively geared. I heard he saves on tax. That must be a good thing, right? And the short answer to that is not necessarily the case. Uh, you've got to look at your own circumstances uh, in terms of what's right for you. And sure. And ultimately, uh, taking even taking the tax aside, I would have thought that being negatively geared means that your expenses or your outgoings uh, are greater than your income from that property. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So essentially, you are making a loss on the property. So. So at the end of the day, it's still a loss. Yeah. That's right, and you, yeah. it doesn't make a lot of financial sense to the, the man on the street that you're actually making a loss. So how does negative gearing from a tax perspective work? Essentially, you do get a, because your uh, overall taxable income um, gets reduced, you do get a minor tax saving on that loss, which reduces the tax payable. So it's essentially what you're doing is you're partially subsidising that loss through tax savings. That's probably the best way to... Uh, think about it, and that's a misconception out there in terms of what actually negative gearing sure. is. You are partially reducing that. Um, yeah. If you, particularly for those who are on the top marginal tax rate, they can potentially reduce uh, or partially subsidise that loss uh, up to the uh, up to the, the maximum tax rate, a top marginal rate of forty nine percent. Sure. And on that note, what if, for example, a husband and wife? Often people get married, um, have. a get some savings together and want to invest in the property for the family's future. So what if one spouse um, is really high income earning on, on, on that top marginal rate like you say and the other spouse perhaps is uh, staying home uh, to look after children or uh, just simply on a lower income, would you recommend that uh, the lower income spouse always holds the property or? Um, it's really horses for courses. Um, obviously, you know, there's a whole lot of uh commercial issues or, you know, sort of uh, issues that people need to uh, look after, you know, sort of, for example, asset protection is one of them. Mm -hmm. Is it better to have the, the property under the, uh, the, the wife's name or is it better to have it under the, the, uh, the husband's name who, who potentially may be earning a higher income? So that's the first point of, point of call that people need to have a look at. Um, in terms of how they structure it, they could potentially have it jointly held, in which case those net losses would be split between spouses. You may have one spouse hold the property in favour of the other. If, for example, in Letty's example, if the if the uh, if the the wife at home had held that property and she was incurring all those costs, um, she may not be making quite a significant income. So those losses may may accumulate for for later income years. With, when she starts, she returns back to work, she sure. can start recouping those losses. And okay. even looking beyond that, if they sell the property, then if they make quite a capital gain on it, uh, the spouse who holds the property in their name will be the one paying capital gains tax. Now, can you uh, explain to us how, how how CGT will work when you actually sell the property, notwithstanding that you may be uh, making annual losses because your interest deductions are higher than their rental income, but one would hope that when you sell the property, you've actually made an economic gain. That's right, yeah. I mean, the, the main thing to note is if you, 
you'd like to think that if you've held the property for quite a considerable number of years, you'll make a decent capital gain from that. So, And the good thing from a CGT perspective for investors is that if they've held the property for at least 12 months, they're entitled to a CGT discount. So, And that discount for individuals is 50%. Um, so that will re, you know, off, uh, reduce some of the... The, uh, the tax liability on that capital gain. But I guess the one thing that uh, investors need to note is that you are creating losses, particularly from a ne negatively geared property from year to year. So what you need to do is ensure that, that those losses that you've accumulated over a number of years, uh, actually plus the value of the, the actual, at least recoups some of that capital yep. gain. So, yeah. so you need to be on top. And so that's why sometimes you know, people think, oh, you know, I get tax savings, but people need to look at the, the bigger picture and look at, you know, what happens if I come uh, comes around for me selling that yeah. that property. And on a year-to-year basis as well, people also need to remember, yes, you may get tax savings, but at the end of the day, you're actually paying more in interest or other expenses that year than you are getting income. So when you look at your overall cash flow situation, can you or your family afford to do that? That's right. And one of the other things that people need to know, note about negative gearing is that what you really want to achieve is you actually want a, the property to be positively geared. So you want to pay down that loan mm. uh, as quickly as possible because interest is still at the end of, end of the day. A sunk yeah. costs, A borrowing yes. costs. Yeah. You'd rather be paying tax on something than than losing a lot more. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. That's right. So, so I think... I think if you know, there's a couple of things to, for people to notice that they, you really want to turn the, you know, you really want the property to be positively pay down that loan so that you can start paying tax on, on that net rental uh, gain as opposed to you know accumulating uh, a net rental loss. Mm -hmm. uh, so so they're things that people probably need to think about because ultimately at the end of the day it is a commercial decision. It's not necessarily about mm -hmm. uh, you know generating uh, tax savings um, through the tax system. But it sounds like. Uh, Ultimately, people need to sit down and do a lot of number crunching before rushing off and buying a property when when and get hold of a low interest rate loan. That's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, with interest rates, you know, at all time, almost at all time lows now, you, you know, sort of you you have to actually do the calculations and think. Okay, look, over the long term, will I benefit from any sort of capital growth with uh, with respect yeah. to this property? Absolutely. And once again, cash flow is really important yeah. to consider. Absolutely. Uh, I've just got one more question for you, Andy. Um, I understand that my taxable income uh, determines whether I'm entitled to government allowances or tax credits and just things like that. So if I negatively gear my rental property, then that means my taxable income will be reduced. Does that mean that I can double dip and I can get tax savings on my rental property as well as uh, have more entitlement to government allowances and so forth. Yeah, that, that's that's a good question, and there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding out there on on this topic. Um, in terms of, there are some aspects where you know you do get a tax saving. So, for example, if a calculation is premised on your taxable income, uh, then you can get a reduction. And the most common example there is uh, the Medicare levy, which is calculated as currently two percent of your taxable income. Mm -hmm. So, if you're taxable income reduces you pay less Medicare levy but there are other areas um, where the calculation is not premised on taxable income and the common example that people run into is you know and a lot of people out there have this is the traditional help debt uh, you go to university and you accumulate this nice big massive debt and that debt uh, gets uh, paid off over time 
depending on which bracket you sit, it can you know range from you know as low as five percent up to to nine percent. So so that that particular calculation is not premised on taxable income. It's, it's premised on a special uh, um, calculation referred to as adjusted taxable income. Uh, to use that term loosely, and basically. If you do have any negatively geared losses, you've got to add those losses back to your taxable income. So you're in a position no different to if you had not uh, obtained that rental uh, negatively geared rental property mm. in the first place. So if if you are paying uh, help at nine percent, you'll continue to pay help at nine percent. So so that's that's one of the ways that uh, negative gearing doesn't necessarily guarantee that you'll reduce, for example, the amount of help that you repay or other such benefits that might, that might arise. And there's a whole list of benefits that, um, that do take that into account, things such as the private health insurance rebate, uh, the Medicare levy surcharge, um, uh, personal super contribution deductions. So there's certain things that you know people need to take into account when when they do have a negatively geared property. And the income tax return does have specific labels where you have to detail those uh, those uh, negatively geared losses that you've generated. So it's just 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 a tip to, uh, tip there for our listeners. Sure. Now, Andy, I understand as Nathan mentioned before that you have just written an article on uh, negative gearing, and that's in the February 2015 issue of the Taxpayer. In other words the current issue and um, I understand that you've uh, you've actually covered a lot of the issues that you've just spoken about just now yeah that's right yeah I guess there are some calculations in that article just to illustrate some of the concepts that yes. we've discussed um, I guess one thing that um, I wanted to, to touch on is you know negative gearing has been around for quite some time and there are a lot of commentators out there who suggest that you know it should be scrapped you know uh, basically why should uh, we subsidize uh, property investors uh, uh, who negatively gear. So it is a question that uh, is worth debating Mm. um, in terms of property prices. We'll leave that to the uh, economists. But uh, it is is something that, you know... Tax is only one one little aspect in this very, very big topic. That's correct, yeah. And so I'm I'm hopeful that perhaps, you know, it might be something brought up in the white paper. It needs a robust discussion, definitely. Absolutely. Well, look out for that... uh, that demystifying negative gearing piece that Andy's put in um, this current issue of the taxpayers, so that's the February 2015. It's well worth reading, especially if you want to gain a little bit of insight with regards to those calculations. And there are some pretty comprehensive uh, examples and calculations in there. It's fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us for episode 14. Uh, stay tuned for next week, episode 15. Thanks for joining us. See Thank you, everybody. You. Bye.